0: Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. Um, well, it's December, which means... I have a whole month of Christmassy winter readings for you, and this will be the first one of the month, which I'm really, really delighted to bring to you. Before we get to our Christmassy bedtime reading, I just want to thank all of our brand new patrons on patreon.com, which is a website where you can go and uh, pledge a couple bucks to listen to an ad-free version of the show. So, this week's wonderful new patrons Anne Marie Morris, Tracy Hall, Adriana Cavill, Kaja N., Stephen Morris, and Rosie Mariani. Thank you all so, so much for donating. I really, really appreciate it. And for any of you uh, listening who don't know, these names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon, which is a website, again, where you can um, go and pledge a couple bucks to essentially directly support people who make the things that you like. So if you like Sleepy and um, you want to be a part of making this show, just go to patreon.com slash radio. And at $2, um, you get access to the ad-free version five dollars gets you access to our poetry feed but no matter how much you donate i will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do so again if you want to be a part of making this show go to patreon.com sleepy radio thank you and as always the music you're hearing is by my good friend james lepkowski and the cover art for sleepy is by gracie canan It is that time of year again. It's December. Christmas is coming. And I am going to be reading a handful of brand new Christmas stories just for you this December. And tonight, I'll be starting with The Romance of a Christmas Card by Kate Douglas Wiggin. It's a a very kind of nostalgic feeling Christmas story a little bit of melancholy Um, but it's really really beautifully written I really enjoyed reading it I think it's a uh, perfect little reading to kind of start getting into this Christmas spirit here on the Sleepy Podcast Uh, because I'm very much looking forward to Christmas this year feeling it Um, so I hope you really enjoy this reading because I did And um, I look forward to bringing you more Christmas stories this month. But without further ado, The Romance of a Christmas Card by Kate Douglas Wiggin. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter One It was Christmas Eve, and a Saturday night, when Mrs. Larrabee, the Bayula minister's wife, opened the door of the study. Where her husband was deep in the revision of his next day's sermon, and thrust in her head, framed a knitted rigolette. Luther, I'm going to run down to Letty's. We think the twins are going to have measles. It's the only thing they haven't had, and Letty's spirits are not up to concert pitch. You look like a blessed old prophet tonight, my dear. What's the text? The minister pushed back his spectacles and ruffled his gray hair. Isaiah 6, 8 And I heard the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send? Then said I, Here am I, send me. It doesn't sound a bit like Christmas somehow. It has the spirit, if it hasn't the sound, said the minister. There's always so little spare money in the village that we get less and less accustomed to sharing what we have with others. I want to remind people that there are different ways of giving and that the bestowing of oneself in service and good deeds can be the best of all gifts. Letty Boynton won't need the sermon. Don't be late, Reba. Of course not. When was I ever late? It has just struck seven and I'll be back by eight to choose the hymns. And oh, Luther, I have some fresh ideas for Christmas cards, and I am going to try my luck with them in the marts of trade. There are hundreds of thousands of such things sold nowadays, and if the Boston Banner likes my verses well enough to send me the paper regularly, why shouldn't the people who make cards like them too, especially when I can draw and paint my own pictures? I have no doubt they'll like them, Who wouldn't? If the parish knew what a ready pen you have, they'd suspect that you helped me in my sermons. The question is, will the publishers send you a check or only a copy of your card? I should relish a check, I confess. But oh, I should like almost as well a beautifully colored card, Luther, with a picture of my own inventing on it, my own verse, and RL in tiny letters somewhere in the corner. They would make such a lovely Christmas present, and I should be so proud, inside of course, not outside. I would cover my halo with my hat, so that nobody in the congregation would ever notice it. The minister laughed. Consult Letty, my dear. David used to be in some sort of picture business in Boston. She will know, perhaps, where to offer your card. At the introduction of a new theme into the conversation, Mrs. Larrabee slipped into a chair by the door, her lantern swinging in her hand. David can't be as near as Boston, or we should hear of him sometimes. A pretty sort of brother to be meandering footloose over the earth. And Letty working her fingers to the bone to support his children, twins at that. It was just like David Gilman to have twins. Doesn't it seem incredible they can let Christmas go by without a message? I dare say he doesn't even remember that his babies were born on Christmas Eve. To be sure, he is only Letty's half brother. But after all, they grew up together and are nearly the same age. You always judge David a little severely, Reba. Don't despair of reforming any man till you see the grass growing over his bare bones. I always have a soft spot in my heart for him when I remember his friendship for a day, but that was before your time. Oh, these boys, these boys, the minister's voice quavered. We give them our very lifeblood. We love them, cherish them, pray over them, do our best to guide them, yet they take the path that leads them from home. In some way, God knows how, we fail to call out the return love or even the filial duty and respect. Well, we won't talk about it, Reba. My business is to breathe the breath of life into my text. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Letty certainly continues to say it heroically, whatever her troubles. Yes, Letty is so ready for service that she will always be sent, till the end of time. But if David ever has an interview with his creator, I can hear him say, Here am I, Lord. Send Letty. The minister laughed again. He laughed freely and easily nowadays. His first wife had been a sort of understudy for a saint and after a brief but depressing connubial experience she had died, leaving him with a boy of six. A boy who already at that tender age seemed to cherish a passionate aversion to virtue in any form. The result, perhaps, of daily doses of the catechism administered by an abnormally pious mother. The minister had struggled valiantly with his paternal and parochial cares for twelve lonely years when he met, wooed and won, very much to his astonishment and exultation, Reba Crosby. There never was a better bargain driven. She was forty-five by the family Bible, a twenty-five in face, heart and mind, while he would have been printed as sixty in who's who in New Hampshire. Although he was far older in patience and experience and wisdom. The minister was spiritual, frail, and a trifle prone to self deprecation. The minister's new wife was spirited, vigorous, courageous, and clever. She was also Western born, college bred, good as gold, and invincibly, incurably gay. The minister grew younger every year. Pariba doubled his joys and halved his burdens, tossing them from one of her fine shoulders to the other, as if they were feathers. She swept into the quiet village of Beola, like a salt sea breeze. She infused a new spirit into the bleak church sociables and made them positively agreeable functions. The choir ceased from wrangling. The Sunday school plucked up courage and flourished like a green bay tree. She managed the deacons. She braced up the missionary societies. She captivated the parish. She cheered the depressed and depressing old ladies and cracked jokes with the invalids. Ain't she a little mite too jolly for a minister's wife? questioned Miss Ossian Popham, who was a professional pessimist. If this world is a place of want, woe, wantonness, and wickedness, same as you claim, Maria, I don't see how a minister's wife can be too jolly, was her husband's cheerful reply. Look how she's melted up the ice in both congregations, so that the other church is most willing we should prosper, so long as Miss Larrabee stays here, and we don't get too far ahead of them in attendance me for the smiles Maria and Osh Popham was right for Reba Lairby convinced the members of the rival church the rivalry between the two being in rigidity of creed not in persistency of good works that there was room in heaven for at least two denominations and said that if they couldn't unite in this world perhaps they'd get around to it in the next Finally, she saved Letitia Boynton's soul alive by giving her a warm, understanding friendship, and she even contracted to win back the minister's absent son some time or other and convince him of the error of his ways. Let Dick alone a little longer, Luther, she would say. Don't hurry him, for he won't come home so long as he's a failure. It would please the village too much, and Dick hates the village. He doesn't accept our point of view that we must love our enemies and bless them that despitefully use us. The village did despitefully use Day, and for that matter, David Gilman too. They were criticized, gossiped about, judged without mercy. Nobody believed in them, nobody ever praised them. And what is that about praise being the fructifying sun? in which our virtues ripen, or something like that. I'm not quoting it right, but I wish I'd said it. They were called wild when most of their wildness was exuberant vitality. Their mistakes magnified, their mad pranks exaggerated. If I'd been married to you, my dear, while Dick was growing up, I wouldn't have let you keep him here in this little backwater of life. He needed more room, more movement. They wouldn't have been so down on him in Racine, Wisconsin. Mrs. Larrabee lighted her lantern, closed the door behind her, and walked briskly down the lonely road that led from the parsonage at Beola Corner to Letitia Boynton's house. It was bright moonlight, and the ground was covered with light-fallen snow, but the lantern habit was a fixed one among Beula ladies, who even when they were not widows or spinsters, made their evening calls mostly without escort. The light of the lantern not only enabled one to pick the better side of a bad road, but would illuminate the face of any male stranger who might be of burglarous or murderous disposition. Reba Larrabee was not a timid person, Indeed, she was wont to say that men were so scarce in Bayoula, that unless they were out and out ruffians, it would be an inspiration to meet a few, even if it were only to pass them in the middle of the road. There was a light in the meeting house as she passed, and then there was a long stretch of shining white silence, unmarked by any human habitation, till she came back to the tumble-down black cottage inhabited by door button davis as the little old man was called in the village in the distance she could see osh popham's two-story house brilliantly illuminated by kerosene lamps and as she drew nearer she even descried austin himself seated at the cabinet organ in his shirt sleeves practicing the christmas anthem his daughter holding a candle to the page while she struggled to adjust a circuitous alto to her father's tenor. On the hither side of the Popham house, and quite obscured by it, stood Letitia Boynton's one-story gray cottage. It had a clump of tall cedar trees for background, and the bare branches of the elms in front were hung lightly with snow garlands. As Mrs. Larrabee came closer, she set down her lantern and looked fixedly at the familiar house as if something new arrested her gaze. It looks like a little nightlight, she thought, and how queer of Letty to be sitting at the open window. Nearer still, she crept, yet not so near as to startle her friend. A tall brass candlestick with a lighted tallow candle in it, stood on the table in the parlor window. But the room in which Letty sat was unlighted save by the fire on the hearth, which gleamed brightly behind the quaint andirons. Hessian soldiers of iron, painted in gay colors. Over the mantel hung the portrait of Letty's mother, a benign figure, clad in black silk, the handsome head topped by a snowy muslin cap with floating strings. Just round the corner of the fireplace was a half-open door leading into a tiny bedroom, and the flickering flame lighted the heads of two sleeping children, arms interlocked, bright tangled curls flowing over one pillow. Letty herself sat in a low chair by the open window, wrapped in an old cape of ruddy brown homespun, from the folds of which her delicate head rose like a flower in a bouquet of autumn leaves. One elbow rested on the table, her chin in the cup of her hand. Her head was turned away a little so that one could see only the knot of bronze hair, the curve of a cheek, and the sweep of an eyelash. What a picture, thought Reba the very thing for my Christmas card. It would do almost without a change, if only she is willing to let me use her. Wake up, Letty, she called. Come and let me in. Why, your front door isn't closed. The fire smoked a little when I first lighted it, said Letty, rising when her friend entered, and then softly shutting the bedroom door that the children might not awaken. The night is so mild and the room so warm, I couldn't help opening the window to look at the moon on the snow. Sit down, Reba. How good of you to come when you've been rehearsing for the Christmas tree exercises all the afternoon. Chapter 2 It's never good of me to come to talk with you, Letty. And the minister's wife sank into a comfortable seat and took off her rigolette. Enough virtue has gone out of me today to Christianize an entire heathen nation. Oh, how I wish Luther would go and preach on an island somewhere and make me superintendent of the Sabbath school. Letty, Do you remember I told you I've been trying my hand on some verses for a Christmas card? Yes. Have you sent them somewhere? Not yet. I couldn't think of the right decoration and color scheme and was afraid to trust it all to the publishers. Now I found just what I need for one of them and you gave it to me, Letty. I? Yes, you. Tonight, As I came down the road The house looked so quaint Backed by the dark cedars And the moon and the snow made everything dazzling I could see the firelight through the open window The Hessian soldiers andirons Your mother's portrait The children asleep in the next room And you Wrapped in your cape Waiting or watching for something Or somebody I wasn't watching or waiting I was dreaming, said Letty hurriedly. You looked as if you were watching, anyway, and I thought if I were painting the picture, I would call it expectancy, or the vigil, or sentry duty. However, when I make you into a card, Letty, nobody will know what the figure at the window means till they read my verses. I'll give you the house the room, the andirons, and even Mother's portrait. But you don't mean that you want to put me on the card. And Letty turned like a startled deer as she rose and brushed a spark from the hearth row. No, not the whole of you, of course, though I'm not clever enough to get the likeness even if I wished. I merely want to make a color sketch of your red-brown cape, your hair that matches it your ear, an inch of cheek, and the eyelashes of one eye, if you please, ma'am. That doesn't sound quite so terrifying, and Letty looked more manageable. Nobody will ever know that a real person sat at a real window and that I saw her there, but when I send the car with a finished picture and my verse is beautifully lettered on it, the printing people will be more likely to accept it. And if they do, shall I have a dozen to give to my Bible class? asked Letty in a wheedling voice. You shall have more than that. I'm willing to divide my magnificent profits with you. You will have furnished the picture and I the verses. It's wonderful, Letty. It's providential. You just are a Christmas card tonight. It seems so strange that you even put the lighted candle in the window when you never heard my verse. The candle caught my eye first, and I remembered the Christmas customs we studied for the church festival, the light to guide the Christ child as he walks through the dark streets on the eve of Mary. Yes, I thought of that, said Letty, flushing a little. I put the candle there first so that the house shouldn't be all dark when the Pophams went by to a choir meeting. And just then, I I remembered and was glad I did it. These are my verses, Letty. And Reba's voice was soft as she turned her face away and looked at the flames mounting upward in the chimney. My door is on the latch tonight, the hearth fire is aglow. I seem to hear swift passing feet, the Christ child in the snow. My heart is open wide tonight, for stranger, kith or kin. I would not bar a single door where love might enter in. There was a moment's silence, and Letty broke it. It means the sort of love the Christ child brings, with peace and goodwill in it. I'm glad to be a part of that card, Reba, so long as nobody knows me, and... Here she made an impetuous movement, and, covering her eyes with her hands, burst into a despairing flood of confidence, the words crowding each other and tumbling out of her mouth, as if they feared to be stopped. After I put the candle on the table, I could not rest for thinking. I wasn't ready in my soul to light the Christ child on his way. I was bitter and unresigned. It is three years tonight since the children were born, and each year I have hoped and waited and waited and hoped, thinking that David might remember. David, my brother, their father. Then the fire on the hearth. The moon and the snow quieted me and I felt that I wanted to open the door just a little. No one will notice that it's ajar, I thought, but there's a touch of welcome in it anyway. And after a few minutes I said to myself, it's no use. David won't come, but I'm glad the firelight shines on Mother's picture, for he loved Mother and if she hadn't died when he was scarcely more than a boy things might have been different. The reason I opened the bedroom door, something I never do when the babies are asleep, was because I needed a sight of their faces to reconcile me to my duty and take the resentment out of my heart. And it did flow out, Reba, out into the stillness. It is so dazzling white outside, I couldn't bear my heart to be shrouded in gloom. Poor Letty. and Mrs. Larrabee furtively wiped away a tear. How long since you heard? I didn't dare ask. Not a word, not a line for nearly three months, and for the half year before that, it was nothing but a no, sometimes with a five dollar bill enclosed. David seems to think it a natural thing for me to look after his children as if there could be no question of any life of my own. You began wrong, Letty. You were born a prop, and you've been propping somebody ever since. I've done nothing but my plain duty. When my mother died, there was my stepfather to nurse. But I was young and strong. I didn't mind. And he wasn't a burden long, poor father. Then, after four years, came the shock of David's reckless marriage. When he asked if he might bring that girl here until her time of trial was over, it seemed to me I could never endure it. But there were only two of us left, David and I. I thought of mother and said yes. I remember, Letty. I had come to Bayula then. Yes, and you know what Ava was. How David, how anybody, could have loved her, I cannot think. Well, he brought her, and you know how it turned out. David never saw her alive again, nor ever saw his babies after they were three days old. Still, what can you expect of a father who is barely 21? If he's old enough to have children, he's old enough to notice them, said Mrs. Larrabee with her accustomed spirit. Somebody ought to jog his sense of responsibility. It's wrong for women to assume men's burdens beyond a certain point. It only makes them more selfish. If you only knew where David is, you ought to bundle the children up and express them to his address. Not a word of explanation or apology. Simply tie a tag on them, saying... Here's your twins. But I love the babies, said Letty, smiling through her tears, and David may not be in a position to keep them. Then he shouldn't have had them, reported Reba promptly, especially not two of them. There's such a thing as a man's being too lavish with babies when he has no intention of doing anything for them but bring them into the world. If you had a living income, it would be one thing, but it makes me burn to have you stitching on coats to feed and clothe your half-brother's children. Perhaps it doesn't make any difference now, sighed Letty, pushing back her hair with an abstracted gesture. I gave up a good deal for the darlings once, but that's past and gone. Now, after all, they're the only life I have and I'd rather make coats for them than for myself. Letty Boynton had never said so much as this to Mrs. Larrabee in the three years of their friendship, and on her way back to the parsonage, the minister's wife puzzled a little over the look in Letty's face when she said, David seemed to think there could be no question of any life of my own, and again, I gave up a good deal for the darlings once. Luther, she said to the minister when the hymns had been chosen, the sermon pronounced excellent, and they were toasting their toes over the sitting room fire. Luther, do you suppose there was anything between Letty Boynton and Dick? No, he answered reflectively, I don't think so. Dick always admired Letty and went to the house a great deal, but I imagine. That was chiefly for David's sake, for they were as like peas in a pod in the matter of mischief. If there had been more than friendship between Dick and Letty, Dick would never have gone away from Beulah. Or if he had gone, he surely would have come back to see how Letty fared. A fellow yearns for news of the girl he loves, even when he is content to let silence reign between him and his old father. What makes you think there was anything particular, Riva? What makes anybody think anything? I wonder why some people are born props and others learners or twiners. I believe the very nursing bottle leaned heavily against Letty when she lay on her infant pillow. I didn't know her when she was a child, but I believe that when she was eight, all the other children of three and five in the village looked to her for support and guidance it's a great vocation that of being a prop smiled the minister as he peeled a red baldwin apple carefully preserving the spiral and eating it first I suppose the wobbly vine thinks it's grand to be a stout trellis when it needs one to climb on but doesn't the trellis ever want to twine I wonder and Reba's tone was doubtful. Even the trellis leans against the house, Reba. Well, Letty never gets a chance either to lean or to twine. Her family, her friends, her acquaintances, even the stranger within her gates, will pass trees, barber poles, telephone and telegraph poles, convenient corners of buildings, fence posts, ladders, and lightning rods for the sake of winding their weakness around her strength. When she sits down from sheer exhaustion, they come and prop themselves up against her back. If she goes to bed, they climb up on the footboard, hang a drooping head, and look her wistfully in the eye for sympathy. Prop on, prop ever, seems to be the underlying law of the universe. Poor Reba, she is talking of Letty and thinking of herself. And the minister's eye twinkled. Well, a little, admitted his wife. But I'm only a village prop, not a family one. Where you are concerned, and she administered an affectionate pat on his cheek as she rose from her chair. I'm a trellis that leans against a rock. Chapter 3 Letitia Boynton's life had been rather a drab one as seen through other people's eyes, but it never seemed to her so till within the last few years. Her own father had been the village doctor, but of him she had no memory. Her mother's second marriage to a venerable country lawyer, John Gilman, had brought a kindly, inefficient stepfather into the family. A man who speedily became an invalid, needing constant nursing. The birth of David when Letty was three years old brought a new interest into the household, and the two children grew to be fast friends. But when Mrs. Gilman died, and Letty found herself at 18 the mistress of the house, the nurse of her aged stepfather, and the only guardian of a boy of 15, life became difficult. More difficult still it became when the old lawyer died for he at least had been a sort of fictitious head of the family and his mere existence kept David within bounds. David was a lively harem scarum handsome youth good at his lessons popular with his companions always in a scrape into which he was generally drawn by the minister's son so the neighbors thought. At any rate Dick Larrabee, as David Sr., received the lion's share of the blame when mischief was abroad. If Parson Larrabee's boy couldn't behave any better than an unbelieving blacksmith, a Methodist farmer's, or a Baptist storekeeper's, what was the use of claiming superior efficacy for the congregational form of belief? Dick's father never succeeded in bringing him into church though he's worked on him from the time he was knee-high to a toad, said Mrs. Popham. Perhaps his mother kind of vaccinated him with religion instead of leaving him to take it the natural way, as the old saying is, was her husband's response. The first Miss Larrabee was as good as gold, but she may have overdone the trick a little might, maybe. And what's more, I kind of suspect, the parson thinks so himself. He ain't never been quite the same since Dick left home, except in preaching. And I tell you, Maria, his high water mark there is higher than ever. Abel Dunn of Boston walked home from meeting with me Thanksgiving, and, says he, taking off his hat and mopping his forehead. Osh, says he, does your minister preach like that every Sunday? No, says I, he don't. If he did, we couldn't stand it. He preaches like that about once a month, and we don't care what he says the rest of the time. Well, so far as boys are concerned, preaching ain't so reliable for behaving purposes, as a good young alder switch was the opinion of Mrs. Popham, her children being of the comatose kind whose minds had never been illuminated by the dazzling idea of disobedience. Land sakes, Maria, there ain't alders enough to the riverbank to switch religion into a boy like Dick Larrabee. He's got to come like a thief in the night, as the old saying is. But I guess I don't mean thief. I guess I mean star. He's got to come out like a star in a dark night. If the whole village, genere or onregenere, generae, and to keep nagging and hectoring and criticizing them two boys, Dick and Dave, carrying tales and multiplying them by 2 on ong-ru, as the old saying is, I dare say they'd both be here yet, yeah? instead of roaming round the earth, seeking whom they may devour. There was considerable truth in Ossian Popham's remark as Letty could have testified, for the conduct of the Boynton-Gilman household as well as that of the minister had been continually under inspection and discussion. Nothing could remain long hidden in Bayola. Nobody spied, nobody pried, nobody listened at doors or windows, nobody owned a microscope, nobody took any particular notice of events. Or if they did... They preserved an attitude of profound indifference while doing it. Yet everything was known sooner or later. The amount of the fish and meat bill, the precise extent of credit, the number of letters in the post, the amount of fuel burned, the number of absences from church and prayer meeting, the calls or visits made and received, the hours of arrival or departure, the source of all incomes, These details were the common property of the village. It even took cognizance of more subtle things, for it observed and recorded the fluctuations of all love affairs, and the fluctuations also in the religious experiences of various persons, not always in spiritual equilibrium. For the soul was an object of scrutiny in Beulah, as well as mind, body, and estate. Letty Boynton used to feel that nothing was exclusively her own, that she belonged to Bayola, part and parcel. But Dick Larrabee was far more restive under the village espionage than were she and David. It was natural that David should want to leave Bayola and make his way in the world, and his sister did not oppose it. Dick's circumstances were different. He had inherited a small house and farm from his mother, had enjoyed a college education, and had been offered a share in a good business in a city 12 miles away. He left Beula because he hated it. He left because he could not endure his father's gentle remonstrances or the bewilderment in his stepmother's eyes. She was a newcomer in the household, and her glance seemed to say, Why on earth do you behave so badly to your father when you're such a delightful chap? He left because Deacon Todd had prayed for him publicly at a Christian Endeavor meeting, because Mrs. Popham had circulated a wholly baseless scandal about him, and finally, because in his young misery the only being who could have comforted him by joining her hapless fortunes to his had refused to do so. He didn't know why. He had always counted on Letty when the time should come to speak the word. He had shown his heart in everything but words. What more did a girl want? Of course, if anyone preferred a purely fantastic duty to a man's love and allowed a scapegrace brother to foist two red-faced, squalling babies on her, there was nothing to be said. So, in this frame of mind, he had one flaming, passionate, wrong-headed scene with his father, and strode out of Beola with dramatic gestures of shaking its dust off his feet. His father, roused for once from his lifelong patience, had been rather terrible in that last scene. So terrible that he had never forgiven himself, or really believed himself fully forgiven by God though his son had alienated half the village and nearly rent the parish in Twain by his conduct. As for Letty, she held her peace. She could only hope that the minister and his wife suspected nothing, and she was sure of Beulah's point of view. That a girl would never give up a suitor if she had any hope of tying him to her for life was a popular form of belief in the community, and strangely enough, it was chiefly the women, not the men, who made it current. Now and then, a soft-hearted and chivalrous male would observe indulgently in some village beauty. I shouldn't wonder a mite if she had a bill for the asking. But this opinion would be met by such a chorus of feminine incredulity that its author generally withdrew it as unsound and untenable. It was then, when Dick had gone away, that the days had grown drab and long. But the twins kept Letty's inexperienced hands busy, though in the first year she had the help of old Miss Clarissa Perry, a childless expert in the bringing up of babies. The friendship of Reba Larrabee so bright and cheery and comprehending, was a never-ending solace. There was nothing of the martyr about Letty. She was not wholly resigned to her lot, and to tell the truth, she did not intend to be, for a good many years yet. I'm not a minister, but I'm the wife of a minister, which is the next best thing, Mrs. Larrabee used to say. I tell you, Letty, there's no use in human creatures being resigned till their bodies are fairly worn out with fighting. When you can't think of another moral thing to do, be resigned. But I'm convinced that the Lord is ashamed of us when we fold our hands too soon. You were born courageous, Reba, and Letty would look admiringly at the rosy cheeks and bright eyes of her friend. My blood circulates freely. That helps me a lot. Everybody's blood circulates in Racine, Wisconsin. And the minister's wife laughed genially. Yours hereabouts freezes up in your six months of cold weather. And when it begins to thaw out, the snow is ready to fall again. That sort of thing induces depression. Although no mere climate would account for Mrs. Popham. Ossian said to Luther the other day. Maria ain't hardly to blame, Parson. She came from a gloomy stock. The lads was all gloomy, root and branch. They say that the lad babies was always discouraged two days after they were born. The cause of Letty's chief heartache, the one that she could reveal to nobody, was that her brother should leave her nowadays, so completely to her own resources. She recalled the time when he came home from Boston, pale, haggard, ashamed, and told her of his marriage months before. She could read in his lackluster eyes and hear in his voice the absence of love, the fear of the future. That was bad enough. But Presently he said, Letty, there's more to tell. I have no money and no place to put my wife but there's a child coming. Can I bring her till afterwards? You won't like her, but she's so ailing and despondent just now that I think she'll behave herself, and I'll take her away as soon as she's able to travel. She would never stay here in the country anyway. You couldn't hire her to do it. She came, black-haired, sullen-faced Ava with the vulgar beauty of her own, much damaged by bad temper, discontent, and illness. Oh, those terrible weeks for Letty, hiding her own misery, putting on a brave face with the neighbors, keeping the unwelcome sister-in-law in the background. It was bitterly cold, and Ava raged against the climate, the house, the lack of a servant, the absence of gaiety, and above all, at the prospect of motherhood. Her resentment against David, for some reason unknown to Letty, was deep and profound, and she made no secret of it. Until the outraged Letty, goaded into speech one day, said, Listen, Ava, David brought you here because his sister's house was the proper place for you just now. I don't know why you married each other, but you did, and it's evidently a failure. I'm going to stand by David and see you through this trouble, but while you're under my roof, you'll have to speak respectfully of my brother, not so much because he's my brother, but because he's your husband and the father of the child that's coming. Do you understand? Letty had a good deal of red in her bronze hair and her brown eyes were as capable of flashing fire as Ava's black ones. So the girl not only refrained from venting her spleen upon the absent David, but ceased to talk altogether. And the gloom in the house was as black as if Mrs. Popham and all her despondent ancestors were living under its roof. The good doctor, called often and did his best, shrugging his shoulders and lifting his eyebrows as he said, let her work out her own salvation. I doubt if she can, but we'll give her the chance. If the problem can be solved, the child will do it. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.